0: everyone and welcome to the all it takes a goal podcast the best place in the entire world including all of canada to learn how to build new thoughts new actions and new results i'm your host john Jacob, and today i'm joined by dr meg meeker who's that Who's that? I'm, I'm so glad you asked. Dr. Meg Meeker is a pediatrician who has practiced child and adolescent medicine for 33 years and is an author of six best-selling books, including Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters, Strong Mothers, Strong Sons, The Ten Habits of Happy Mothers, and more. She is a nationally acclaimed speaker on parenting issues and has appeared on numerous television shows, including The Today Show, NPR, Today with Kathy Lee and Hoda, Dateline NBC, The Anger Mangle, Fox and & Friends, and The Dave Ramsey Show, among Many others. She has spoken with the United Nations, that's the UN, if you want to be briefer, on the topic of fathers, and she serves on the advisory board of the Medical Institute. Dr. Meg's podcast, Dr. Meg, I feel like I said Dr. Med there. That's not her name. Her name is Dr. Meg. Dr. Meg's podcast, Parenting Great Kids, has reached over 7 million listeners across the globe. I was a guest on it, it's a great podcast. She has created many online courses to help parents. She's also the mother of four grown children and a grandmother to five. She's been married to her husband, Walt, with whom she shares a medical practice for almost 40 years. And we've known each other for about 12 years now. We did some events together 12 years ago. That's where we first met each other. So it's always fun to have a friend on the show. I can't wait for you to hear this episode. But first, a quick message from the sponsor of today's episode. Every year. I set crazy big goals, and every year, there's one productivity tool that I use to help me reach them, the finished calendar. I've been using it for over a decade, and it's helped me crush goals like running a 1,000 miles in a year, growing my business, and writing a New York Times best-selling book. Thousands of people have bought them over the years too. Why? Because it works. It's not magic, it's science. Study after study has shown how important tracking your year is. But my favorite came from the University of Kostanz in Germany. They showed that when you track when and where you're going to work on something, you double your chances of success. Let me say that again, you double your chances of success. This calendar is massive. It's beautiful, it's motivational, and it comes in paper or dry erase. On top of all the other amazing features, you can choose to display it vertically or horizontally, because this bad boy is also double-sided. If you've got a big goal, or a lot of big goals, grab a Finnish calendar today at finishcalendar.com. Once again, that's FinnishCalendar.com. All right, let's jump right into my interview with Dr. Meg Meeker. Dr. Meg, I'm so glad you're here with me. We've known each other for, I think it's more than 12 years. I think it's more than 12 yes. years, which is a dozen in some languages. So I'm excited you're here. Thank you for joining me. Oh,
1: thanks for having me, John.
0: I like to start with some kind of rapid fire questions to kind of ease into it, because I find that sometimes on podcasts, I immediately go into like a really serious question about somebody's book or their movie or whatever. So I'm going to start a little lighthearted. First question, what's the worst gift you've given somebody?
1: (laughs) The worst gift I've given somebody. Um... I think it was, um, a bunch of scotch tape, like a huge roll of scotch tape, um, because they were a little bit disorganized and a little, a little bit, need a little bit of help. And that wasn't taken very well. So that's a pretty pretty bad. You gave somebody like a six pack of tape as a gift. Yes. That's
0: that's pretty good. Of tape. Uh,
1: Yeah. And, 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 and when you give somebody something like that, they take it personally. Like, um, what do you think is wrong with me that I need this tape? That's funny. And clearly I had to backpedal from that one.
0: That's pretty funny. I gave my wife snowshoes, which is a bad gift because one, she hates the cold. And two, I gave her one pair of snowshoes. I didn't buy us both snowshoes. So I was essentially like, why don't you go walk out in the woods alone? Which is not a, that (laughs) was like, leave
1: me alone. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, exactly. That was year two of our marriage. So I've gotten better, but that was a bad gift. Okay. Second question. What's one of your favorite movies? Like what's one, you know, a movie that you can either watch again and again and again, or one that you still remember the first time you saw it?
1: Oh my. Um I love uh Victor Hugo's Les Mis. Love, love, love it. I've yeah. seen it over or and Chariots of Fire.
0: Chariots of Fire. Those are both great. I was I was gonna say Goodwill Hunting. I'm a big fan of Goodwill Hunting. That's probably on, on that's my That's a good one. Yep. That's probably on, on my list. And then um last question. What's the first car you ever drove?
1: Now this is going to crack you up. I had a three quarter ton Chevy pickup truck that was uh manual it and and it had a st- um a stick shift that was probably three feet long and here was this little kid going off to college driving this big huge um truck and and when you put it in four wheel drive you had to get out of the car and you had to turn the things on the wheels to let the the um you know the four wheel drive engage i loved that car that's a um,
0: where did you grow up that you were going off to college in a rig <laughs> like were you from um, saskatchewan grew- is this a saskatchewan <laughs> reference no. what do we got going on you here? know
1: it felt so good no i grew up uh, outside of boston in a very historic mm-hmm. place called concord mass which is now oh, yeah. very sort of she, I, you know i left oh there. yeah sudbury but- lexington concord that's yes. fancy yeah very fancy. But when I grew up, it wasn't as fancy. There were a lot of people who had horses. And we did a lot of work in the fields. We, um, you know, pulled horse trailers, we picked right. up hay bales in the fields. And I just love that. And I had a lot of work to do around the barn. And so uh, that's the first car I asked for. And my dad was thrilled. And he said, there you go. So I drove uh, off to college, my, all women's college and Western Mass in my pickup truck. Where did you go to college? Mount Holyoke College. It was oh, all sure. women. Sure. Yep. And you've got,
0: where did you, you've got, received advanced degrees after that. Where, give us the, Correct. like, this is, Correct. this is my path. The,
1: the list. Okay. So. After I graduated Mount Holyoke College, I went to Cincinnati, Ohio and went to University of Cincinnati College of Medicine, Um, Mm -hmm. during which time I had a baby. My husband and I got Mm -hmm. married after six months of knowing each other, had a baby, Um, went and started residency in uh, Children's Hospital of Wisconsin as a pediatric resident, but we had a baby. So my, my husband actually stayed home for almost four years with our daughter. And I thought, well, You're home. That means I can just keep getting pregnant and hand you a baby. So uh, by the time I finished, I was pregnant with our third. And then he did his training back outside of Boston. And I stayed home with the kids.
0: I love that. that Yeah. A real give and take, a real balance. And you mentioned a daughter. That's how I first found out about you was, some of your work about strong daughters, strong fathers. So, what inspired you to go down that path of research, that path of work? Um, because there weren't a thousand options on that topic when you wrote it. You this was one of, in my opinion, one of the first books that really said, okay, I'm gonna focus on this. What made you wanna focus on that relationship?
1: Well, it really came from my practice when I was, uh, you know, working in my practice as a, pedi- a pediatrician, which I still do. I never thought about writing a book, but what I saw uh, happening in my practice uh, versus what was happening in the culture, there was an enormous disconnect. For instance, I saw that girls in my practice—I took care of high-risk girls, you know, wealthy girls who were doing fine, but the girls who did the best emotionally, um, intellectually. Uh, even physically, I guess, were the ones who had dads that were engaged. I mean, not PhD in psychology engaged, but, mm-hmm. you know, just engaged enough. And I also saw at the same time, dads being dumbed down in the culture through television and video Go Wait, 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 wait a minute. You know, we're sort of bashing our dads, but kids need them, daughters in particular. I had a very good dad, very inspirational to me. My husband Uh, did a great job with our three daughters and we have a son who's our youngest. And I, and I really felt somebody needed to move into that area and change the paradigm. I wanted dads to see how their daughters see them because I felt if if they could see what their daughters see and want from them, that might ignite them to say, Hey, I'll move in closer to my daughter. And after I did that, the book just hit. And I was, I was very surprised, you know, because I just sort of did it out of my heart thinking, you know, we got to do something for our dads here. And I'm still doing my encouraging dad work. So.
0: Yeah. And dads still need it. I think that was for me, I had young daughters at the time I read it. And it resonated with me. What would you say? So there's some dads listening or there's some wives listening that might go or some moms listening that might go, oh, that's really surprising. What are some of the surprises that dads don't understand? So you said, okay, if I could get dads to understand how their daughters looked at them what would be some of the things that when you talk to a dad and go or a group of dads Mm because you you're a speaker Mm -hmm. you travel around the country speaking around a variety of topics but what are the things that when you say hey here's three things dad dads don't know that make them go oh i had i had no idea
1: yeah the first one is that you're the most important man in our life and dads gasp when I say that. No, it's a teacher, it's a coach, it's a boyfriend, it's a grandfather. I said, no, 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 because you're the one that teaches your daughter what to expect from ma- men and how to relate to men. Um, second is that um, y- she looks up to you as larger than life. You're really her hero in a lot of ways. Again, dads go, what are you talking about? I'm no hero. I said, you know, to your daughter, She's little and she looks up to you as the one who's going to take care of her and protect her and nurture her and, you know, watch over her. She doesn't see her mother that way. Now, I know that's going to make a lot of mothers mad. It isn't better. It isn't worse. But daughters see their dads very differently from how they see their mothers. Um, and also, to be a great dad is pretty simple you know, but the simple things are very hard, you know, mm-hmm. show up, show her some affection and give her attention and affirm her. Um, any dad can do that. Any dad can do that. But dads make father life so much more complicated because I think you guys compare yourselves to what your guy friends are doing, or you go, gee whiz, my daughter won't do that for me, or she won't talk to that you know to me skip all that just skip all that and focus on doing three or four things and you're there that's it you don't have to be a perfect dad you know you can still drive a really ugly car you can only have one car you don't need a fancy house she doesn't need all her great clothes give her those three things and she's off and flying and those are the things that my dad gave me and my husband I saw give our daughters When
0: you think about um, the research that informs this, because I think that's one of the most powerful parts of the book is that there's a lot of emotion in how you write. There's a lot of honesty. There's a lot of relatability. There's a lot of those personal connections. But there's also, hey, I'm a doctor. Hey, here's the Mm -hmm. research, which I love because there's a ton of books on the market that – one person has one experience and then goes, this is how it is for everybody. And you go, no, that was how it was for you. You haven't read a, you didn't go to medical school. Like you haven't seen mm-hmm. a thousand daughters and a thousand dads. So from a research perspective, what are some of the stats or the data that you go, oh, okay. So like, you like what I said about, you got to affirm, you've got to, you know, be encouraging, you got to be present. That's all great. Mm-hmm. It's a soft skill. You're working on it. Awesome. But by the way, data, 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 like hit us with data. some numbers, Dr. Meg.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, we now know that, I mean, some of this is amazing. If a dad starts reading to his daughter with her on her lap, just reading to her when she's six months of age and they test her, um, her IQ when she's three years old, her IQ is measure measurably higher than girls whose dads didn't read to them. Believe it or not. Girls who have a dad in the home start their menstrual cycles later than girls whose dads are in the home. Um, Da- girls who have a dad in the home, again, I don't want your listeners to think these are great dads who understand and talk yeah. and all this kind of stuff. A dad in the home, much more likely to go on to um, college and to graduate school, much less likely to get involved in sex, drugs, and alcohol, much less likely um to be poor, uh, much more likely to have a higher self-esteem and less likely to, you know, struggle with depression, anxiety across all levels in a daughter's life. If they have a dad in the home, they fare much better. As a matter of fact, you can't find one area in a girl's life where she fares less well um, when her dad is in the home, unless of course dad is is very abusive. Sure. But bottom line is, as ridiculous as this sounds, symbols dads are great for daughters. Even just regular dads who are in the home, not doing a whole whole lot, but having their presence in the home changes a girl's future.
0: I I love that, and I'm. I love that you're saying too – okay, we're not saying you have to – we're talking about a super dad that gets up at 4 a.m. and does an hour-long Bible study with his daughter and then he whittles her a rocking chair from from a Mm. piece of wood he carved. Like you're not saying perfect dads. I want to shift for a second and go, okay – I'm a dad who I've got a 16 year old and I'm listening to this and I'm like, oh, no, I should have started reading when she was like a fetus. Like I'm already behind, like Mm because I know there's a lot of parents that feel behind. That's a very common feeling Mm -hmm. for parents. So if I'm a mom or a dad, I'm a parent in general that goes because you also talk to moms. You also have a lot of advice Mm -hmm. and wisdom for moms. What do I do if I'm, I've got a 16-year-old? It hasn't been terrible. It hasn't been great. It's just kind of been, and I can see the edge of college coming, and I feel behind. What do you say to a parent like that? Because I, I think you have great feedback for them, to, and it, and it gives you some tactical things you can do now at this stage with your kids. Or maybe you got a 25-year-old. Give us, like, I feel behind. What do I do?
1: Yeah, great great question. Well, first of all, you know, your child isn't completely an adult we know now until they're in their early 20s or around 25. So here's the good news. Yes. If you're not close to your 16-year-old, you can have 9 more years to <laughs> oh, that's make it great. Happen. That's great. That's good news, bad yeah. news. But here's the other very, very important thing. I hear this all the time from dads. You know what? I blew it. My daughter's 30, it's too late. And I always tell dads this. Every woman takes one man to her grave and it's her dad. Mm -hmm. So just like men, how many adult middle-aged men do you know, John, who are running around still trying to get the approval from their dads? You know, a lot of times it's subconscious, but dads have a power in your life. So many middle-aged women and older women are still profoundly impacted by the relationship with their father. In other words. It's never too late for a dad to grow closer to his daughter and to have a better relationship because until she dies, she always wants more from her dad, more Mm. healing, or more time and love from him. And that never, ever goes away. So age doesn't really matter in a daughter.
0: That's so helpful. And you're right. I know... I know men in their late 40s who are still – and they might not even know this, but they're still trying to get Mm -hmm. their approval of the dad. And sometimes the dad has passed away. Sometimes the dad is no longer alive and they're still – a dad set up a negative soundtrack, what I'd call, like, and when they were young. And they're still trying to – and it doesn't matter the money. It doesn't matter the size of the house, the size of the yacht, whatever. There's still Mm -hmm. that sense of chasing. I know there's a lot of moms that are listening right now, and you've also done – research writing around the idea of okay what's a mom's role or impact with a son so for the mom listening that's maybe like okay well that's for the dads what do you what mm-hmm. do you try to encourage moms about when it comes to how they raise sons
1: well i did write a book strong Mothers, strong sons because mothers have a big impact on their sons as well the relationship a parent has particularly a mother with a son is very different from the relationship she has with a daughter um boys in the first 7 years of life mom's it you know they feel uh security in their mothers they spend more time with their mothers but then once they transition into puberty and then into teen years dad's it and during the teen years this is one of the biggest mistakes modern mothers make is that we need to help our sons transition from boys into men and in order for them to do that they need to sort of emotionally separate from us they don't need to go completely away but a a 15 16 17 year old boy who still feels he depends on his mom it feels kind of creepy Mm -hmm. so mothers need to sort of back out a little bit and if dad is around and he's a pretty good dad to let the son bond more with the dad very hard for mothers because we're kind of control freaks Forever, never, never. Um, but we need to let our sons go. And once we let our sons go and look to them as men, never forget my 18 year old son looking down at me one time. He's very, very tall. And he said, um, Mom, quit treating me like there's something wrong with me. I'm not a boy, I'm a man. Mm-hmm. And I realized my need to have to be able to do something for him or fix him or mom him. He hated it. And so I said, thank you. And I called a man from then on and I stopped sort of micromanaging him and I backed off. Then a son can be uh, become a man. But mothers these days, we're, we're told we need to be our kids everything. And particularly single moms feel like we need to be our sons everything because there's not a man in his life. So we go way overboard. We overparent, we helicopter and we never stop. And that doesn't do well for boys. That's one of the most important things that mothers need to recognize about psychological development of their sons is that they need to um, back away in order for there to be that level of maturity.
0: So how let's talk about like a practical or tactical way to do that, because I think one of the hardest things as a parent is. Watching your kid make life harder than it needs to be because they need to Mm -hmm. learn the decision. Like I can't, you know, I, I had a friend the other day and we were talking about this and he said, I wish my 16 year old, you know, had his act together more. And I said, well, when did you get your act together? When did you get detailed and disciplined? He said about 32 And I said, well, so it took you 16 (laughs) extra years. No offense. Like, even if you're an amazing parent, maybe you shaved off a year for the kid. So how do we, in a tactical way, we're watching our kids. Maybe they're making mistakes, but they're they're mistakes they need to make. Because if we rush in and fix them, they don't get the lesson and they don't get to grow into the people they're meant to grow into. How do we, as parents, because I'm a control freak. I wouldn't have said that earlier. Mm -hmm. I'm very much am. I very much am. How do we, in a tactical way, pull back when there's situations like that?
1: Well, I I think you need to look at every single situation. And if the the child or if your son failing isn't going to bring consequences that are disastrous, like, you know, letting him go to a party and drink with his friends and drive home, you go, well, he's got to learn sometime. No, no, no. That's too hard of a lesson. But... If he's uh not doing well in soccer and he's not a very good soccer player, let him figure it out. Don't stand on the sidelines going, you can do it, you can do it, you can score a goal. Maybe he can't, you know, maybe he's mm-hmm. terrible, but let him figure that out. Don't do homework for your kids. Let him get a C or an F. Because mm-hmm. think about all the great leaders and really strong leadership skills come from Um, having failed and getting up again over and over and over. Those who never fail never really succeed Mm -hmm. because because they haven't had to sort of grab that internal um, fortitude and say, let's go here. So look at opportunities. This is really hard as a parent where your kid could get rejected. Don't tell him what to do with a girlfriend. If the girlfriend breaks up with him, he's going to learn something. You know, don't go in there and try to salvage the relationship. Don't do him, you know, his homework for him, particularly when he's young. Um, you know, don't get that extra coach for his soccer or whatever. Just let him fall and be. And it's very painful to watch. It's very painful. But you have to do it in order for him to grow and to be a strong man. But again, you don't want to allow him to make mistakes that are gonna have devastating consequences.
0: Yeah, so it's really about the size of the situation and the consequences it is. of the situation. It is.
1: It is. It is. And if and if the consequences aren't going to be devastating, back off. Let him go. Mm-hmm. Let him go. Um, you know, um Let him have that friend as long as his friend isn't going to take him down a really bad path. Um, let him have that girlfriend unless she's going to, you know, be horrible to him or whatever. But I, but it's still hard. It's still hard, John, for me to, to, to do this with my son. And it, then it all comes back around again. When you have a grandkids, you start all over again. And I've got to say, you know, back off the control. The good thing with grandkids is that your own kids step in and say, back off, mom you know you're driving me nuts so i do
0: that's good that's good well one thing i know a lot of the parents listening to this today are have questions about is screen time so there's whether it's video games whether it's instagram snapchat tiktok what's what's your take on how much screen time is good for kids what's too much how do you manage that situation cuz i think there's a lot of parents that are needing to raise a kid amongst a lot of different challenges when it comes from their digital lifestyle. I know for me, mm. I was super self righteous and super naive and was like, my kid won't get a phone till they're 16 or 17. And then one day my wife said, it's a shame that they don't, she doesn't have a phone because she's the only one in her small group that doesn't have one and she missed all the encouraging mm. texts they send each other all week. And I was excluding her from. Like I had a wholly negative negative view of social media and phones, and I realized, mm-hmm. oh, she's missing part of life because of my old school yeah. attitude. Where? How do
1: you enter that conversation with parents? Yeah, well, you know, we're making strides. Cell phones are always going to be here. Internet is always going to be here. Our kids are always going to have, you know, bad things come at them. First of all, there's these really, really wonderful devices called a gab phone. Or Gizmo, I think it's called mm-hmm. Gizmo. These are phones where kids can text and talk and play games and listen to music, but they're not connected to the internet. And that's where mm-hmm. young kids um, get fall into trouble. So they're perfect starter phones for kids They can still connect with their friends, um, but they're not going to get into bad stuff because you know, kids, sixteen girls, even year old girls, even eighteen year olds don't get that when you put something out there creepers can see anybody can mm-hmm. see first i tell believe it or not it bothers kids more for their parents to be on phones than for parents for their kids to be on phones so the first thing is when you walk in the door you got to put your phone down i mean you've got to oh as the parent
0: the parent piece. has to set the set the oh, stage oh it's the parent
1: oh yeah, oh yeah. parents are terrible uh, yeah
0: terrible my, da- my daughter times- calls me a yeah. screenager she calls me a screenager do- if she's trying to talk to me and I'm on my phone. she go, oh, sorry, screenager. Let me know when you're done. And I'm like, <laughs> there okay. you go.
1: Lock yeah. it away. Have a lockbox in, yeah. you know, in your kitchen somewhere. Have a thing mm. where it is from seven to eight or eight to nine or whatever. Everybody's phones get locked. Including yours. And, you know, sometimes if you feel like your kid is on, say, social media or playing video games, say three hours after school or four hours after school, you need to wean your kid from that. And so you need to set time limits. Say, okay, you can use your phone or you can play a video game, you know, after whatever, or after a certain time at night, you can't use your phone. Don't let kids take their phones to their bedrooms. Oh, but I need background music. Oh, but I need no, because friends call and it keeps kids awake and mm-hmm. kids sleep is so poor. So you can let your kids use them, you know, an hour here, an hour there, because remember, John, this is fun screen time. I'm not talking about screen time to get their homework done. Yeah. You know, the average kid is on screens, you know, eight to nine hours per day. That's a lot. How many times, how how often do they talk to you during the day? 40 minutes, maybe. So you need to tip that balance, maybe. So be more present with your kids, put your phone down, start to uh, limit their access. But when you limit their access, you've got to limit your access too. And you've got to talk to your kids. That's really the rub. Is that you have to talk to them? Yes. And and, and yeah. you have to let them figure out what to do without a phone in their hand. And you have to figure out how to be with a kid without either one of you having a phone in your hand. But you know what? It's so great. I mean, kids actually yeah. like learning how to be off their phone because it, there's more stimulating stuff going on there. Read a book, you know, um, you know, play with your sister, or your brother, go outside. Once yeah. kids get used to spending less times on Time on their phones, they like it, they really do like it, contrary to what we would think um I mean I've had boys addicted to video games upwards of six, seven, eight hours a day playing games, and they realize something's wrong, but they can't take control to wind down on it so once you know I helped this kid get uh, you know off of his video games on the phone and and spend less time on them, he felt so. Good and thought, why didn't I do this earlier? So don't always think you're being a bad, mean person by getting your kid to, by limiting the amount of time they can use their phone or play video games. After a while, they're really going to like it and they're going to thank you. Really, I'm not kidding, I promise you.
0: Yeah, it's interesting the part about parents because it is easier to go, okay, well, they're on their phone. Like, the parent has to do the work of going, I'm going to be engaged. And if you've got a surly 14-year-old... Uh, so here's my question. Is there a period of a like teen boy's life where they're super surly and they, they sometimes use their attitude as a way to try to shut you down and you as a parent have to like push past that, push that aside, and still be present? Because I know as of... I'm And I'm speaking from experience. I think I was just a punk from like 11 to like 31. Um, and I used my <laughs> attitude to push people away. Yeah. How is a parent, because there's a parent listening right now that are like, this sounds amazing. I would love to do all this. But my 14 year old is really sarcastic and knows the meanest ways to make me feel terrible and says mm-hmm. comments like, how do I move beyond that? What's my role there? Yeah, well,
1: first of all, when you see your kid being really snarky, don't assume it's about you. You know, as parents, what am I doing wrong? Why does he not like me? No, 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 no. It usually has nothing to do with you. There is, there is a need beneath that and a story that he's telling himself beneath that that has nothing to do with you. And most kids during the teen years, they get really snarky, feel rejected by friends. They feel ugly. They feel stupid. They feel, you know, nobody wants to be around them, whatever whatever. Mm-hmm. Self-esteem of kids during their teen years is, is, is terrible. It's terrible. Um, you know, boys feel rejected by girls. So when your kid is snarky, first, don't take it personally. Second, sort of see past it, you know, say, I, I know you're having a bad day, but I, I just need to talk to you about this. Let the kid know you're on their side. You're not opposing them mm-hmm. because when your kid comes at you with, things showing like I'm just gonna you know show you something dad don't bite don't bite don't get mad back because they're Mm -hmm. trying to draw you in to overpower you to let you make you do something you don't want to do so don't bite just say whoa 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 you know I I know that um you're upset about something but I but I need to talk to you about something else. Because when you get baited into fighting back with a kid, you go to your room, you have such a bad attitude, I can't take it. And you start ping-ponging like that, n- nothing good ever happens. Mm-hmm. So you need to back out. If the kid is not wanting to talk or they're being too aggressive, don't talk to them about something at that time. Wait until they've calmed down. Bedtime's a wonderful time to talk to your kids about stuff, Um, and so you know that's kind of my recommendation. um, Recommendation is look below the surface. It's not about you, and don't get pulled into an argument and realize that your kid's going to use that to manipulate you, and just refuse to be manipulated. Don't bite back.
0: That's that's great advice. Yeah, they'll outgrow. Yeah,
1: exactly. Well, you know, one more thing about girls, because I did the father-daughter book, you know, daughter dads often say, you know, one day my daughter just came downstairs and I went to hug her and she stood there and almost spit at me, like, get away, you creepy person. And so I said, okay. And I went away. And I say, that's the worst thing you can do, because here's what's happening. Your daughter feels so awful about herself. Everything's wrong because they live with the sense that everybody sees them. They're so profoundly egocentric. They they think mm-hmm. that everybody sees everything that's wrong with them. So they feel bad about themselves. And what do they do? They spit at dad. So mm-hmm. get away from me, dad. I know you're like everybody else. Don't take, again, don't take it personally. This isn't about you, dad. This is about her. And once you recognize, it's not about you, then you can sort of gently come back. And in and, and sort of, we had a daughter we called, we had to put her into a hug training because she went through this, like, stay away, stay away. And my husband was like, okay, I'm going to come and give you a hug now. So stand still, kind of make a game out of it a little bit. But mm-hmm. the worst thing you can do is back off and wait till she comes around. and She's nice again when she's 18.
0: Uh, that's that is great advice and i i've seen i've seen that in my in my own house that's great advice you mentioned um again strong father strong daughters you've actually done a movie version, so it's funny to think about you didn't think you'd write a book and I'm sure years yeah. and years and years ago when you wrote the book you didn't think i bet this will be a movie. Tell us about that experience i mean it's not it's. I mean, what a special thing to get to turn that content. How did that happen? What's the movie like? Why was I not just a cameo? Like, I could have walked behind somebody in the film. I'm just like, I <laughs> well, would have I promoted I, it. I would have promoted it like crazy. I got a lot of Twitter followers. No, tell us about the movie because I think that's amazing.
1: Well, first of all, they're, they're talking about doing a, a, mocha, a book, excuse me, on my on uh, my mother's son book. And if they do, John, you will be in it. Okay. Yeah. I will okay. tell them. They have hey, it's to put on,
0: you it's in. on audio now. It's on a podcast. It's on audio.
1: So. <clears throat> Here's what happened, you know, and this is just the way your life goes. You all of a sudden find yourself thrown in these situations. You go, how in the world did I get here? How, how mm-hmm. did I get here? Well, after I wrote the book, I was very, very surprised. It just hit all over the world. And I thought, Oh, this is good. And I went on and wrote another book and another book. Then what people don't realize is we authors don't own our books, our publishers do. Mm -hmm. Um, and the same is true for movies. We don't own the movie. Um, the movie people buy the rights to the book, maybe unbeknownst to us. And then they go and make a movie. So a number of years ago, uh Pureflix contacted my publisher and said we want to write the we want to buy the rights to the book. They told me and I went, "Okay, that's nice." Four or five years went by. I totally forgot about it and I got mm-hmm. a call from uh one of the producers said we're, you know, we're working on the movie, we're filming. Do you want to come to LA <laughs> and watch the movie and I said, "Tomorrow. Do you want to come tomorrow?" And I said, "Sorry, I don't I can't just jump on a plane tomorrow." Anyway, long yeah. story short, they involved me in letting me see the screenplay. And even though I don't own it, I, I was able to weigh in on some things, take this out. No, 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 I don't like that. And then mm-hmm. they did it and they made it. And, and when it came out, which was August 1st, I will tell you, I was so nervous because Pure Flix is a Christian Netflix. And this is awful. I thought this is going to be so cheesy. No, you know, that's I not awful that's, a, that's appropriate. We do some sucky stuff. Let's just be honest. Exactly. <laughs> cheesy, cheesy, cheesy. Yeah, and I yeah. thought my name's <laughs> on it. My book is in it. Uh, you know, and 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 so I thought if this is bad, I'm in big trouble. My yeah. career as an author. Yeah over. But yeah. you know, so I, I turned it on, I watched it, and I was pleasantly surprised. And I actually mm-hmm. really like it. It's not cheesy at all. It's a fun, uplifting movie. It's kind of funny. Um, mm-hmm. and, at the, and at the end, it kind of yanks at your heart. But it's a real feel good, not over the top movie. And so I'm really tickled with it. And my book appears in it, you know, everywhere, because his father's having a hard time getting through to his daughters. And this friend comes over and says, if you really want to get through to your daughters, and I gulped, read this book. And there was my book. And which was incredibly humbling, because I thought my book is good, but it's not that good. And so, um so it was, it was really fun. I've been, I've been very pleased with it. And, it, and apparently, it's done really well. So. I, l- I
0: love that. What a what a wild experience that must be as an author to see your work turned into something like that. So It's kind I'm curious. of surreal. Yeah. yeah, it has to be. It ha- I mean, it's, it's similar to yeah. how I feel when I get a foreign edition of a book and I go, somebody in yes. Russia is reading this and it has a lobster on the cover. I don't know why, but that's wild <laughs> exactly. to think. The thing you wrote in your little office turns into something. I want to ask a couple questions, Couple couple more questions around your approach to goals. So mm-hmm. you you do a million different things. Like you've got a master class that's strong father, strong daughters. You're a speaker, you're a writer. You're also a doctor in addition. Mm-hmm. Like you do, it feels like you do a lot of the same things I do, except you're also a doctor, um, which is not a small also. Um, it's kind of like you're also a rocket scientist and you go to Mars in between speaking engagements. How do you yeah. personally approach goals? like? You seem like you get a lot done. You seem like you've accomplished a a number of things that you're passionate about. What's your approach to goals?
1: Well, first of all, when people talk about a balanced life, they think that I need to be able to do five things every single day and feel good about them and balance them. My approach is not that. I'm an all or nothing person. If I'm going to write a book that's all I do for months and months as career wise. I back off on my speaking. I back off on seeing mm-hmm. patients in my office. And so I do things more sequentially than all, uh, than all at once. And that's mm-hmm. how I find balance in my life. Um, the other thing is I focus on what I'm really good at. I figure out what I'm not good at and I let other people do that. I don't pull off my life by myself. I have eight people working for me. I have mm-hmm. a very great husband. Um, and that's how I pull off my life. Because if I try to do everything all the time, I would just burn out. And so I've learned what I need to make things work. I need exercise four or five times a week mm-hmm. because I go crazy if I don't. I also have really bad untreated ADD. And mm-hmm. I lose things all the time like my purse and computers and things like that, you know, important things. So I've learned that I can't allow my mind to get gummed up with too many things at once. So um, if I'm working on a project, I'm very, very, very focused on that project and I say no to a whole lot of things. And saying no for a lot of women who are very compliant and want to be really nice is very hard. But the only way you're going to succeed at your goal is to say no at times to other things. So I I really get hyper-focused when I need to. And that's a discipline because my brain doesn't want to do that.
0: How have you learned to say no? That's an interesting. So what are some things that have helped you get better at saying no over the years?
1: Well, practice. Honestly, Mm. practice. And it's still very hard because there's so many worthwhile things that come at me. But if I'm working on something that's very important, I train myself. As soon as somebody asks me to do something, I go, wait a minute, wait a minute. I told myself that I wasn't going to take on more. So I, I, I practice saying no because... Otherwise, you're going to be writing your book or getting your talk ready or whatever. And pretty soon it's it's delayed and it's delayed and it's delayed. And so I realized every time I say yes, I'm delaying something that's really important to do. Plus, if you're going to take what you're doing very seriously, like writing a book, it's not fair to that book and to yourself to not say no. But it takes a lot of practice because it's hard because you're saying no to very worthwhile things. And there are times I just say, look, you can't exercise now. It's the way it is. You can do it later. Um, Mm -hmm. But right now you need to focus on blank. So you just have to learn to give things up and realize if they're that good, you can do them later. Pick them up later.
0: Yeah, I think that's part of the lie is that this is we make a lot of things once in a lifetime opportunities that aren't. Like there's very few, I remember I met a 23 year old who was like, this job's a once in a lifetime. And I thought, you're going to work for 50 more years. I hope it's not one, like you're 23. It would stink to a 23 be like, that was my one shot next half a century. Just no more opportunities. But we, we add a lot of pressure, I think, to ourselves that way. And peers do that. Peers do that. Peers do that. Sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no. So what do you mean by peers do that? Like the people that you surround yourself with?
1: No, no. So if you're between 30 and 40, let's say you have a lot of friends who are between 30 and 40, and probably those friends are trying to establish their careers and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And they're having kids and they're this and they all share notes and they all talk about what they're trying to do. And so one person who says, you know, I'm going to have kids now and pursue my career in five years is going to be less likely to do it if she sees her friend doing having kids and having a career and exercising, do, doing all these things all at once. So that's where the pressure comes from. We compare ourselves to what our friends are doing. And what 30-year-olds and even 40-year-olds need to realize is after your kids are grown and gone, you've got a lot of time to do your stuff, yeah. Yeah. you know, um, to get really good at, at what you t- I think Winston Churchill didn't become prime minister until he was 60, I think. But anyway, so spread things out over time. Don't feel like you're living in a pressure cooker to get everything done now just because your friends are.
0: I think that's really wise. I, I always joke that part of that stems from in college that people will say, oh, you got to go to go to Europe now. Go now. As if Europe is closed when you're in your 30s or 40s. Like, you can only go when yeah. you're 24. Portugal hates 40-year-olds. And where I'm now, yeah. 46, I'll be 47 soon. Like you have more money, you understand yourself better. So you do less things that are dumb. You're like, oh, I like restaurants or I don't like restaurants. I like, you know, Mm -hmm. I prefer Stockholm over whatever. And you are able to actually do it. So I love that idea of like, yeah, you think there's a moment, but the moments are longer. And I think part of that is life is short. We tell ourselves that all the time. Two last questions and they're both very easy. First one, we ask everybody that's on the podcast this, what are the four books that are on your Mount Rushmore, like four nonfiction books that you love? Or if you want to answer the question this way, because sometimes it's hard to think of four on the spot. What's a book you've given away more than any other book other than your own? Because we both as writers, <laughs> like we own. have garages full of books. And like if somebody makes eye contact with me at the airport, I'm like, here's a copy of my book what's a book you've given away more than any other or what's on your Mount Rushmore of nonfiction books that, that have impacted you?
1: Well, I, you know, I tend to read things from colleagues. Um, I'm trying to think um, celebration of discipline by Richard, ah,
0: Richard Foster. Foster. Yeah.
1: I give that away so much because that's my go to get your life back in order. And, um, and you know, and I use it next to my Bible really of of just sort of going through and it's like, okay, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, I've gotta to learn to simplify. Yep, yeah, yep, yeah, I've gotta to learn to, you know, listen or, you know, get my prayer life in order. Um, as far as um and I love poetry, I love Emily Dickinson, I love Jane Austen, those are all fiction though. And yeah, that's I love fun. The classics. Sure. Yeah, I love the classics. I like The Count of Monte Cristo. I love oh, yeah. Victor Hugo's Les Mis. Um, I love Anna Karenina, um, Brothers Karamazov. Y- you know, I just like things like that because they have depth to them, and I love to read because it takes you into a different world, and mm-hmm. you can create the characters to look like however you want them to.
0: You it's know, a power. It, it's a fun it, power.
1: It, it is power. Yeah, it is yeah. a fun power.
0: I love that. Okay, last question. This one's easy. Where can people find out more about you? More about what you do, your books, your movie, everything. Where can people find out more about Dr. Meg?
1: Yeah, I would go to, um, certainly not Wikipedia, because they're wrong. Um, I go to meekerparenting.com.
0: Meekerparenting.com. That's M-E-E-K-E-R. You know how to spell the word parenting. Yeah, dot Dot com. com. Awesome. Well, Dr. Meg, it's always so fun to see you. I did your podcast, not too long ago. And that's where we reconnected after a couple of years of just barely missing each other at speaking engagements. Um, we are in a lot of the same green rooms, just not on the same day. That's how it is with public speaking. And engaging. I wish, and I wish,
1: and I wish we, we would be because we really run parallel lives. And um, that's too bad because the, the people that you really connect with are people that are doing very similar things, but unfortunately you don't get to see them. So yeah, it's fun. thank you so we much out. for having me. Yeah. We geek out at stuff.
0: And I'll tell you, I grew up in Massachusetts. Concord is fancy. Is Concord the one that their zip code is 01776, or is that Sudbury? Because one of those two cities fought for- Ours was
1: 01742 is Concord. Now, Concord is fancy now. But back in the day, we had the old school New Englanders- Who the more money they had, the harder they tried to hide it. So you'd Uh, wear an Oxford shirt with a frayed collar or you'd never wear makeup. Um, you know, for women, obviously, but it's very different now because there's a lot of wealth that's moved in. Um, and. Honestly, it would be hard for me to live there. A, I couldn't afford it anymore. Yeah. Um, it's a bun- bunch of wealthy, um, you know, hedge fund people in Boston yeah. that are yeah. um, building these huge houses. But it is very beautiful. I love the history. I love the history of Concord. So Shot where, heard where, around what the world. Town did you it's grow gorgeous. Up
0: in? I grew up Where'd in Ipswich. Up? Uh, Ipswich, Massachusetts okay. uh, is on the North Shore. Cranes Beach, North gorgeous. Shore. And then we moved to Hudson, which is near Hudson, Sudbury, Framingham, all that. And then we lived – my wife and I lived in Arlington, which is next to Cambridge. So we we had a couple different stops. Yeah, but yeah, I remember – I think it's Sudbury. There were three towns that fought over the zip code 01776 because of 1776, and they
1: wanted the pride of that. So Concord must have – I think it was Sudbury that won – they mu- yeah. They must have lost, and and you know, Patriots Day was a big deal in New England. Oh yeah, schools shut down. Oh yeah, yeah, and we, yeah, we celebrated the Revolutionary War, and we walked the old, you know, path. They did, and
0: oh yeah, um, yeah, I remember it yeah, all. It's so yeah, funny it, we had that in common. I didn't realize you were you yeah. were from Concord. What a small world. It's a, it's a different a very- culture.
1: It's a completely oh. different culture. First time I moved to the Midwest, and I went into a grocery store, I thought why is everybody talking to each other? You know, we just in New England, you just sort of leave people alone. So
0: no, the cashier at stop and shop never asks how your day is like she, she, he or she just does (laughs) their job. Like the guy at Papa Gino's doesn't care how your day is. Like he just, and I always (laughs) like, like, so when I went to school in Birmingham, I grew up in Massachusetts school in Birmingham. I was the same way. I was like, why do people keep asking me how my day is like strangers would talk to me and I was real like standoffish. I got, I had a really like, I was very confused at the outgoing nature of strangers in the South. I was kind of like, what's it to you? What's it to you? Like that was my attitude.
1: (laughs) And people think we're snobby. It's not that it's just, we're trained to sort of stay to ourselves. It's not like we don't like other people. This is just the way we live, you know? So it was, a sh- it was a jolt to moving to the Midwest.
0: Yeah, same with me. I just had the, uh, the Southern version of that. That's so funny. Well, I'm glad to know I'm not the only one. This is why we could talk for hours. Dr. Meg, I can't wait to share this episode with people. People are going to love it. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you, John.
0: Thank you for listening to my interview with Dr. Meg Meeker today. We'll put all the links in the show notes as always. And thank you for reviewing my podcast. The reviews you write are super helpful and super encouraging. I've said this a million times before. You get kind of in an echo chamber when you do a podcast because there's not interaction like there is at a live event or in a conversation. And so the reviews are a chance for you to talk back to me, talk with me. And I really appreciate when people take time to do that. So thank you for taking the time to write those. Please make sure you subscribe or follow or whatever it is the kids are saying these days. We'll be back next week, next Monday. And remember, all it takes is a goal. And don't forget to pick up your copy of the Finish calendar, brand new, massive, beautiful, double-sided vertically or horizontally, paper or dry erase at finishcalendar.com. Once again, that's finishcalendar.com. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the All It Takes is a Goal podcast and to get access to today's show notes and exclusive content from John Acuff, visit acuff.me podcast. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of the All It Takes is a Goal podcast.